Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, episode 118, Long Arm of the Lord. Well, I've got a debate in store, you, uh, in store for you today, and it's kind of long, so I'm not going to spend much time on my monologue. I only want to spend a moment to encourage those of you listening who might be interested in participating in a debate uh, to reach out to me and, and tr- arrange for one to be hosted on my show. You can email me at chris at theapologetics.com, and I'll help you to find an opponent, and, and we'll set up a date and time that works, and, uh, and and we'll put it all together. Moderating debates on my show is something that doesn't take a lot of my time. I, I don't have to prepare much for it in advance. I don't have to spend a lot of time during the actual recording, and uh, and it doesn't take much time afterwards doing production. And that's really important for me right now on the Theapologetics podcast because I've got a ton of things vying for my time nowadays. I've got the time with my family, uh, which is normal, uh, but I'm also looking for a job that's taking up time. I've also got um, uh, uh, my education. You know, I'm taking classes at Liberty University, as as longtime listeners know, Uh, and I'm also taking Greek at a local uh, college in... um, that's about an hour and a half drive away or longer, one way. So a lot of my, and there are other things as well, ministry at Rethinking Hell, where we're working on our second book, as well as our second conference. Um, Just a lot of my, I have precious little time is the point that I'm getting at. And debates are something that I that I can squeeze into that time uh, and and continue the the podcast going. So if you'd like to participate in a debate, whether you've done them before or whether you'd like to dip your toe in the water for the first time, why don't you email me at chris at theapologetics.com and we'll set something up. In particular, uh, Laurent Cleanwork, the Eastern Orthodox Reverend who has been who has done a couple of debates on my show in the past, he's looking to do another debate. So if you'd like to debate the Apocrypha and its canonicity, or if you'd like to, to debate whether or not there should be priests and bishop in priests and bishops in the church, or whether you'd like to debate the uh, the virginity of Mary, any of those topics or any other ones that divide Protestants and Eastern Orthodox, um, let me know. Chris at theapologetics.com will get something set up. Speaking of Rethinking Hell, that's the next promo in my promo rotation. We don't actually have a promo yet put together, uh, but the intro that is played at the beginning of every episode is kind of like a promo in and of itself, so let's listen. I know there's a hell outside, you see. And the soul, of course, lives forever in torment. You're listening to the Rethinking Hell podcast, where evangelical Christians discuss what the Bible says about hell and put conventional and controversial views to the test. To continue the discussion and find more resources on this topic, you can visit us online at www.rethinkinghell.com. 
I know that many or most of you listening are not conditionalists or annihilationists, as we're sometimes called, as I am. And that's okay. But if you'd like to learn more about the view, and I think it's important that you do understand the view, even if you don't agree with it, there's really no better place to go than RethinkingHell.com. And that's something that's becoming increasingly acknowledged, either explicitly or implicitly. Uh, For example, by our being mentioned in the New York Times recently, or by our being mentioned on... uh, uh, Al, Al Mohler's uh, podcast. Um, so it, it's it's happening more and more. This is a, a a doctrinal force to be reckoned with, and you need to learn more about it, even if you don't agree with it. So I'll just leave it at that. Do check out the website at RethinkingHell.com or search for Rethinking Hell in iTunes uh, and subscribe to the podcast. We'd love to have you along. With that, let's go ahead and move into today's debate. As the words I'm speaking are being recorded, it's Thursday, November 13th, 2014, but whenever it is you're listening, hello and thank you so much for tuning in to another Fee Apologetics podcast debate. Christology has been the topic of several debates on the podcast. First, Michael Burgos debated Oneness Pentecostal James Anderson. Then James White debated Arian Patrick Navis. Later, Chris Tilling debated Arian Dave Barron. And most recently, Michael Burgos returned to debate adoptionist Cornell Thomas. Today, Michael Burgos, my friend, joins me again to debate a Oneness Pentecostal, this time Oneness pastor, evangelist, and apologist Stephen Ritchie. A former Marine for whose service I thank him, Stephen is the pastor of the Oneness Church Pillar of Truth in Farmingville, New York. He's the author of several ebooks available at the Pillar of Truth website, www.truegospelofjesus.org, and has participated in several public moderated debates. In particular, he recently debated two Trinitarian pastors on Long Island, New York, the videos of which have been viewed tens of thousands of times on YouTube, and according to Stephen, even Trinitarians have said that he won the debate. Stephen, thank you so much for participating today. Thank you. Uh, Michael Burgos is a theology student at Lee University. He's the author of Kiss the Sun, a Christological Apology in Response to David K. Bernard's The Oneness of God, and he's contributed to both volumes of the Journal for Trinitarian Studies and Apologetics. He attends Northwest Hills Community Church with his wife and six children. He's my friend and has been a guest on the podcast more than once, but I'll be doing my best yet again to be neutral and objective in moderating the debate. Mike, thanks to you as well for being here today. It's always a uh, pleasure, Chris. With those introductions out of the way, let me explain today's debate. Uh, The proposition is going to be this. The Father alone existed as God prior to the Incarnation. Stephen Ritchie affirms and Michael Burgos denies, and they've agreed to the following format. Steve will begin with a 20-minute opening statement affirming the proposition, followed by Michael's 20-minute opening denying it. Stephen will have 15 minutes for his first of two rebuttals, followed by Michael's first 15-minute rebuttal. Stephen and Michael will have 10 minutes to cross-examine one another in that order, and then they'll have a second round of 10 minutes of cross-examining one another. Following cross-examination, Stephen will present his second 10-minute rebuttal, followed by Michael's second 10-minute rebuttal. And then Stephen will present his seven-and-a-half closing statement, followed by Michael's seven-and-a-half closing statement. There will be no round of Q&A this time, so that'll wrap things up. And with all of that out of the way, I'll open briefly in prayer, and we'll begin. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so very much for the technology that enables us to gather virtually today to discuss and debate what it is that you've revealed in your word concerning yourself and concerning your son, Jesus Christ. 
and, and for the technology that enables hundreds, even thousands of faithful students of your word to download and listen along. We are finite creatures, Lord. We know that. And we know that you're infinite in your being, transcending our ability to fully comprehend who and what you are. As such, I know that we shouldn't, uh, that we should expect that what you've revealed about yourself and about your son may not all fit easily into categories and examples familiar to us, which we experience in our finite world and with our finite senses and minds. But on the other hand, Lord, you inspired the writings contained in our Old and New Testaments, ensuring that what has been written about you is true and authoritative, as well as able to be apprehended. We needn't throw up our hands and surrender, feeling hopelessly unable to figure out what it is you intend for us to understand about you. Rather, we know that we can trust so long, we can trust that so long as we subject our thinking to your word, accepting what it teaches, even when we struggle to fully grasp it, then as we carefully study it, we can know what it is that we are to believe about you. And so I pray today, Lord, that you would work within each of our hearts, convicting us to truly subject our limited understanding to the perfect, reliable, and authoritative scripture. And to accept what it says, even if what it says is beyond our capacity to fully understand, and even if it is contrary to what it is that we've been taught and been teaching, especially if that's the case. In Jesus' name, thank you so much. Amen. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Stephen, you're up first, and uh, when you begin speaking, I'll begin your 20-minute timer. Yes, Chris. Thank you, Michael Burgos, for your participation, and thank you, Chris Date, for moderating and having me on your program. The biblical evidence proves that the Father alone existed as God prior to the Incarnation. Jesus said in John 17, 3, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. Jesus addressed the Father as the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is in perfect harmony with 1 Timothy 2, 5, which states, For there is one God then therefore that one God must be the only true God, the Father. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So according to Jesus, the only true God is the Father. He never said, this is eternal life, that they may know us, the only true God persons of a three-person deity. He clearly said that they may know you, the only true God, the Father. So Jesus never addressed the Holy Spirit as another true third God person of a trinity, nor did he speak of himself as another true God person, for there's only one true God, the Father. Jesus said in John 43, I'm sorry, 4:23-24, the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeks such to worship him, not them. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. I challenge Michael Burgos to execute John 17.3 and John 4.23, which proves there is only one true God, the Father. Since Jesus is called the arm of Yahweh revealed in Isaiah 53.1, and again in John chapter 12, the Apostle John affirms that Jesus is that arm of Yahweh revealed, he must be that arm of the only true God, the Father, coming to save us as a man. Isaiah 59.16 says, God saw that there was no man and was appalled that there was no man to intervene. So his own arm brought salvation. So God couldn't find a holy man. He could not find a man righteous enough to save us. So he became our salvation. According to Psalm 118, verse 14, Yahweh became our salvation. Yahweh became our Yeshua. 
Not a single verse in the Bible ever shows Jesus praying to the Holy Spirit. Jesus never prayed, O heavenly Holy Spirit, your kingdom come. We don't pray, O heavenly God the Son, or O heavenly Holy Spirit, because Jesus was an example for us to pray to our only true God, our heavenly Father. 1 Corinthians 8, 6 states, Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father. If there is only one true God, the Father, there cannot be two other true God persons of a three-person deity. There cannot be two other divine persons beside him. The title God the Father or similar designations such as God our Father, God and Father, or God even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ appears 31 times in the Greek New Testament. But we never find the Trinitarian titles God the Son or God the Holy Spirit, no, not even once in the Bible. Malachi 2.10 plainly states, Have we not one Father? Has not one God created us? So the only true God is our Heavenly Father, who created all things by his own hands, all alone and by himself. Likewise, Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah 64, 8, says, O Yahweh, you are our Father, and we are the clay, and we are all the work of your hands. Notice that only Yahweh is our Father. O Yahweh, you are our Father. Not a single verse says, O Yahweh, you are our Holy Spirit, or O Yahweh, you are our Son. Because there's only one true God, the Father, and we are all the work of his hands. Isaiah 44, 24 says, I am Yahweh that makes all things, that stretch forth the heavens alone, that spread abroad the earth by myself. This is very emphatic language, proving that there's only one true God, the Father, who did it all alone and by himself. If I were to build a house or a barn and I hired an agent to a contractor to build a house or barn, and then after my contractor did all the work for me, if I turned around and said, I built this house or this barn all alone and by myself, would I not be lying? But God the Father must be the speaker, because there's only one true God the Father. And Isaiah 64, 8 says, you are our Father, we are the clay, we are all the work of your hands. Malachi 2.10 again says, have we not one Father? Has not one God created us? But Trinitarians have three fathers because they say the Son was an agent in creation as another God person, and they also say that the Holy Spirit was involved in the creation as two other distinct God persons. Psalm 102 verse 25 proves that God, our Heavenly Father, created all things by his own hands. And I quote, You laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. But Hebrews 2, 7 states, You made him, the Son, a little lower than the angels. You crowned him, the Son, with glory and honor, and did set him, Greek word kathistemi, which means to set or appoint him. You set or appointed the Son over the works of your hands. Therefore, the Son did not create anything as the Son, because the Son is the man. Hebrews 3.3 clearly states that this man has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. And verse 4 says, for he who built all things is God. So prior to the incarnation, he who built all things is God. The Son did not create anything, create anything as the Son because the Son is the man. So how could the Son have created all things as a second God, the Son person, while Hebrews 2.7 states, 
that the Son has been appointed to rule over the works of the Father's hands. Trinitarians have two fathers, and when they add the Holy Spirit, they have a third father. But to us, there's but one God, the Father, who created all things alone and by himself. That's why Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of Yahweh, by the word of that only true God, the Father, God created the heavens and the earth by the breath of his mouth. How many mouths do we believe that God has? If God the Father created all things by the breath of his mouth, how many mouths does God have? God's word clearly says that God has one face, one mouth, one nose, one right hand. He never speaks anthropomorphically as more than one divine person. So we go back to Hebrews 1.8. To the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you above your companions. What companions? Human companions. So this is a prophecy, a direct quote from Psalm 45, 6, and 7. So the son is clearly prophesied to ascend to the throne of David. 1 Chronicles 29, 23 calls that throne of David the throne of Yahweh. So the son will ascend to the throne of Yahweh. Uh, Revelation 22 says that the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants shall serve him. So the throne of God will be occupied by the man, the Lamb, but there will only be one throne in which God will reign through his only in, in image of the invisible person that he is, the Son of God. Colossians 1.15 clearly says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So there's only one image of that invisible God. And then verse 10 says, And you, Yahweh, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. When we compare Scripture with Scripture, we find that the Son did not create anything as the Son, but prior to the Incarnation, the only true God, the Father, created all things alone and by himself by the work of his hands. So this Scripture is not proving that a God, the Son, eternally existed as another distinct God person. This scripture is proving that the son is the man. You hated lawlessness, therefore God, your God, has anointed you. Hebrews 1 proves it that it was the man, Christ Jesus, who was anointed by his father. For he who anoints is greater than the one who is anointed. So Hebrews 2, 7 clearly proves that the son will be set over the works of God the father's hands. The very name Yahweh means a self-existent one. Jesus came in his Father's name, and so Jesus' name means Yahweh saves. He must have the name of that only true God, the Father, because Jesus is that arm of Yahweh, the extension of God himself becoming a man. 2 Samuel 7.14 records the prophetic words of God the Father concerning his future son during the Old Testament time period. God the Father said, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son in the future. The author of Hebrews applies 2 Samuel 7, 14 to Jesus. Hebrews 1, 5, and I quote, For to which of the angels has he said at any time, You are my son, today have I begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Why would our heavenly father say, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son, during the Old Testament time period, if our Heavenly Father was already a father to the Son before the Incarnation. 
If a God the Son was up in heaven at that time, it would be ridiculous for God the Father to say, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. We only find the Son at the right hand of God after the incarnation, after Jesus Christ died and was resurrected and ascended up into heaven, now at the right hand of God, waiting till his enemies be made the footstool of his feet to ascend to the throne of David, the throne of Yahweh. So Luke one thirty five says clearly that the Holy Spirit sired the child and incarnated himself. The New American Standard Bible, Luke one thirty five says, The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. I challenge Mr. Burgos to give me a reason why Jesus is called the Son of God other than the New Testament reason given in Luke 1.35. The reason why the Son was called the Son was because of the Incarnation. The title Son of God and Son of Man were given because of the Incarnation. The title Son is huios in Greek, which means a son or an offspring or an inheritor. How could the Son have been an eternal offspring? The Son clearly had to have a beginning and a beginning. Isaiah 9, 6 says, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. If we're going to call the son an eternal son, we might as well say that the son is also called the holy child, an eternal child, as well as an eternal son. And also, that would mean he had to have an eternal beginning, because you cannot have an eternal beginning without having an eternal beginning. Psalm 2, 7 says, you are my son, this day have I begotten you. The Hebrew word for day is yam. The Hebrew word for begot is yaled. The Hebrew word for day is used throughout the Old Testament for a specific day. The Hebrew word for begotten yaled is used for a specific birth, as in the births of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4, 1 and 2. So it's impossible to state that the son was born on an eternal day as an eternally begotten son. There is not a single verse in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation supporting a living pre-incarnate Messiah. Because the word Messiah in Hebrew and Christ in Greek means the anointed one. An anointed one, if it was a pre-incarnate anointed one, you would have Arianism, a subordinational son, and not true Trinitarianism, according to the Athanasian Creed. The scriptures also prove that the Holy Spirit is not a third God person of a trinity. God says in Genesis 6, my spirit will not always strive with man. Book of Joel says, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Just as we humans have one spirit, so God has one spirit who transcends the, the finite realm because he is the infinite God whose spirit fills the heavens and the earth. 2 Corinthians 3, 7 says, the Lord is the spirit. You go down a few verses, we find in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus, the Lord. So Paul said, the Lord is the Spirit, and Jesus calls Jesus, I'm sorry, Paul calls Jesus Christ the Lord. So 2 Corinthians 3, 7 clearly teaches that the Lord is Jesus, because Paul said, Christ Jesus the Lord. So Jesus is Lord, he must be the Spirit. 2 Peter 1, 20 says, the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. But the same apostle in 1 Peter 1, 11 identifies that Spirit as the Spirit of Christ. Spirit of Christ was in the prophets, testifying beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that would follow. 
Romans 8, 9 says, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so, be that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So Paul calls the Spirit of God the Spirit of Christ. Hence, the Holy Spirit must be the Spirit of Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory, in Colossians 1.27. Luke one thirty five says, The Holy Spirit overshadowed, came upon the Virgin Mary. So the Holy Spirit incarnated himself to become the human spirit of Christ. Hebrews 2.17 says that he, Christ, was made like his brethren, fully human in every way in the NIV. So if Jesus is fully human in every way, that gave him the capacity to be tempted. Therefore, he had to pray as all men need to pray. But he was not just a man because he was called the arm of Yahweh revealed to us as God. Jesus identified himself as the spirit of truth in John 14, 17, and 18. Jesus said, Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you. Jesus is speaking in figurative language about the Father. John 16, 25 says, These things have I spoken to you in figurative language, but the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly of the Father. So Jesus was using figurative or veiled speech about his true identity as the Father. So you go back to John 14, 17, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it sees him not nor knows him for he dwells with you. So the Holy Spirit is called the he and a him. Then Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So Jesus Christ identifies himself as the Holy Spirit of truth. Therefore, Jesus Christ must be the same Spirit called the Holy Spirit. And since there's only one true God, the Father, the Holy Spirit must be the Spirit of the Father. Because Ephesians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6 says that there's only one Lord, one faith, one God and Father of all, through all, and in you all. So since there's only one true God, the Father, he must be that Spirit that dwells in the hearts of the believers. Jesus said, when you're brought before rulers and magistrates, do not premeditate in your heart what you shall speak. For in the same hour, the spirit of your father will give you the words. But in another occasion, he called that spirit the Holy Spirit. So there must be only one spirit, which is the spirit of the one true God, the Father. And so if we're going to call Jesus God and the Holy Spirit God, the spirit and the word that was made flesh and the spirit that was incarnated in Christ must be extensions of or manifestations of that only true God, the Father. That's why Jesus said in John 14, 10, that the words that I speak unto you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me, he does the works. And again in John 14, 24, Jesus said, The word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. The Greek word for word in John 14, 24 is logos. The same Lagos in John 1, 1 and in John 1, 14 that was made flesh. Since Jesus spoke the Lagos, the word of the Father, he must be that word, that Lagos, that was made flesh. For the Father who dwells, he does the works. He never said, God the Son who dwells in me, he does the works. Isaiah 43, 10 says, You are my witnesses, says Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen. So we know it's God the Father who is speaking in this passage. Because he speaks of the future childborn and son that would be given. You are my witnesses, says Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. 
Jesus said in John 8, 24, If you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Dr. James White, uh, in, in uh, a debate with an Arian, he quoted this scripture to prove that Jesus is God. But when you think about it, these are the words of God the Father, and so Jesus quoted the words of the Father pertaining to himself. If you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. It's not I am we, but I am he. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. I, even I, am Yahweh, and beside me there is no Savior. One minute. There's no Savior between... This is there's no savior beside the one true God the Father. Jesus must be that one true God the Father, as the arm of Yahweh revealed. The word uh, servant here in Isaiah 43:10 is translated from the Hebrew word ebed. It means slave or servant. Are we to think of the Son as an eternal slave or servant? Clearly, the Son of God had a beginning and a begetting. Ephesians 1, 4, 5 says, For he chose us in him in Christ before the creation of the world. So God's people were already chosen in Christ before the world was even created. So in that sense, Jesus was also chosen before the world was even created like a heavenly blueprint. Jeremiah 1, 5, God the Father says, Before I formed you, Jeremiah, I knew you. Since God already knew the prophet Jeremiah, God could also know his future son and all of his true elect. That's time. And so since God, have I done? Yeah, you can wrap, you can finish your sentence. Okay, since God already knew the prophet Jeremiah, it's possible to believe that God already loved him before his actual conception and birth. Wherefore, Christ could say in John 17, 24, you love me before the world was. Okay. Thank you so much, Stephen and Michael. I'll hand the proverbial microphone over to you and begin your 20-minute timer as soon as you begin speaking. Okay. Okay, uh, thank you uh, once again, Chris, uh, for hosting um, – once again on your program and moderating and you Mr. Ritchie as well for your time spent in preparation and participation uh, frankly I was somewhat surprised by Mr. Ritchie's affirmation of tonight's thesis he affirms that God before the incarnation was father even more uh, he affirms that the father's existence uh, the father existed before creation According to his website, which in uh, email correspondence he affirmed the authorship of, he stated, quote, God the Father created everything alone and by himself. In a certain sense, I'm pleased about Mr. Ritchie's affirmation of the eternality of God the Father, as this is a belief that is foundational to Trinitarianism. Uh, the teaching of Christ was marked by the characterization of God as Father. Jesus taught us to pray not merely to God, but to our Father. Jesus made known his identity by revealing the unique relationship he has to God the Father. He claimed to be the one who was sent from the Father, of whom God the Father has sent his seal, and the one who was glorified by the Father. The level of dependence and the specificity of this relational aspect of God employed by Jesus is a departure from the generalized characterization of God as Father in the Old Testament. 
Jesus' teaching superseded the Old Testament's conception of God as Father by means of his depiction of his unique relationship, a relationship that was understood by the theological establishment as a claim to equality with God. Jesus came to make God known to man, and he revealed God as Father. And indeed, the Trinitarian Creed begins, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Mr. Ritchie's belief that the Father existed alone before the Incarnation and even the creation places him on the horns of an insurmountable dilemma. This dilemma is so irreconcilable that I believe in affirming today's thesis, Mr. Ritchie has conceded the debate already. In order to affirm the eternality of the Father, my opponent must affirm one of the following. Either the fatherhood of God is derivative of the certainty of his work as creator. That is to say that God is father because God is creator. In this case, God is dependent upon creation for his very identity. Needless to say, if there is anything clear in scripture, it is that God is not dependent upon creation, but rather creation is dependent upon God. The other option here is that the eternal fatherhood of God is irrespective of creation. If Mr. Ritchie affirms this option, he would have made God out to be the equivalent of a married bachelor, a father who for eternity past had no progeny. If Mr. Ritchie affirms this option, he would effectively be redefining the term father to mean something that it doesn't mean. We really need to understand the God that my opponent has come here to defend this evening. A God who was alone for eternity past, but who at the same time was father. A God who said of his image bearer, it is not good that the man should be alone. And yet the one to whom the image belongs has known nothing but eternal loneliness in eternity past. My opponent has come to defend a God who is by his very nature non-relational. That is, Mr. Ritchie's God never knew what a relationship was like. He never knew what it was to love and to be loved until he created. Necessarily, this means that the God of Mr. Ritchie's oneness theology learned what it was like to be in relationship upon creating. Mr. Ritchie's God learned what it was to love another person at a specific point in time. But really, is this the God that we read about in Scripture? Or does Scripture reveal a God who doesn't learn what it means to love one another, but rather a God who is love? For the balance of my time, I'm going to appeal to several biblical texts in support of the eternality of the Father by way of the eternality of the Son. The first is Hebrews chapter 1. In this text, uh, the writer makes an argument for the supremacy of the Son of God by means of identifying things said by the Father of and to the Son of God. In verse 2, we are told that the Son was the one through whom the world was created. The preposition translated through is best here understood by means of. Uh, that is to say that it was by means of the Son that the Father created the world. The writer goes on to identify the Son as the one who sustains the universe by the word of his power. And that's in uh, chapter 1, verse 3. In verses 10 through 12, the Father is characterized as quoting Psalm 102 and applying it to the Son. He states, You, O Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, 
Like a robe you will roll them up, like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years have no end. In this text, God the Father has explicitly identified the Son as the one who laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, in our case, that phrase, uh, that familiar phrase, in the beginning. Yet, Mr. Ritchie has stated, quote, all things were created by God the Father alone. The second text I'd like to appeal to is John chapter 17. In this passage, we have the prayer of the Son right before his arrest. In this section, note that Jesus identifies the one true God as Father, just as Mr. Ritchie identified. That is in perfect harmony, and, and, and it needs to be underscored, that is in perfect harmony with the doctrine of the Trinity. He states in verse 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Evidently, Mr. Ritchie does not object to the translation of the first clause as glorify me with your own self or glorify me in your presence, as this is the translation that he uses in his own writings. Within this clause, the incarnate son asked the father to glorify him, parasayatu, in his presence or with him. I point out this construction because it's directly related to what follows. The text then states, with the glory that I had with you, that is, parasoi, before the world existed. In this kind of context, when the preposition para is used uh, with the dative, it is indicative of being in the presence of, just like the beginning of the verse states. If my opponent wishes to contend that the Son of God was not glorious in the presence of God before the world's creation, then necessarily he would have to deny that the Son requested glory with the Father at all. Um, that's just the nature of the syntax here. In other words, the phrase, phrase glorify me in your own presence is syntactically united with the glory the Son claimed to have before the world was made. The, this kind of language is no by no means limited to John chapter 17. In John 8:38, Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees and he states, I know that you are the uh, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, and yet you seek to kill me. My word, because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Here again we see the son saying that he was previously with his father. He says, I speak of what I have seen with my father. When did Jesus see things with his father? When was the son of God with the father seeing things? If we look within the context of that passage just a little further, we see the Pharisees respond and say, They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one Father, even God. Jesus responded to them and said, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Notice, the Son identified when he was seeing things with the Father before he came from God. The timing is implicit in the text, and it culminates in verse 58, wherein the Son identifies himself using ego I me. He didn't say that the Father in me is I am, but rather I am. Now, uh, lastly, I'd like to take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Um, I'll read the text real quickly. Uh, it says, He who, or, or it could be God, there's a textual variant there, was manifest in the flesh, Vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, uh, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. 
Um, this is a oneness favorite, this text, uh, particularly the, the phrase, he, uh, God was manifest in the flesh. It's important to note that this text presents its subject by means of the passive voice. That is to say that the, the verb that is translated manifested, the, the Greek verb phaneru, is in the passive voice. This six-part construction um, speaks of what has been done to and for the one who has been made visible in human flesh. The text speaks of the reality of the one being revealed in flesh. And therefore, the text implicitly communicates that the subject who is revealed in flesh exists prior to being made visible in the flesh. And that is his revelation in the flesh from the perspective of this text. But that revelation is the result of the active work of another. Notice, he was manifested in the flesh. That's using the passive voice, which means that if this were talking about God the Father being manifest in the flesh, God the Father would have to have someone else, another agent, making him manifest in the flesh. I don't think that's at all congruent when one is theology, but it certainly is congruent with uh, Trinitarianism, because we believe, of course, that Jesus subjected himself to the limitations of human existence by the will of his Father. And not only was he personally active in that uh, work of substitution and coming to this earth uh, as an authentic human being, but that it was the work of the triune God together. And uh, I'm going to concede the rest of my time, Chris. Okay, thank you so much, uh, Michael. So at this point now, we're going to move to our 15-minute rebuttals. And Stephen, when you're ready to go, when you begin speaking, I'll start your 15-minute timer. Okay. Okay, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 says, in him, in Christ, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his own will. This scripture clearly proves that God's elect were already chosen in Christ in the of God the Father before the world was created. Jeremiah 1.5 proves that God already knew the prophet Jeremiah before he was formed in his mother's womb. If we are to say that God already knew Jeremiah, like the word of God says, then God could also have already loved the prophet Jeremiah in prophetic anticipation of his future existence. In God's miraculous foreknowledge, he knew all about Jeremiah and so God could also foresee the reciprocal love that Jeremiah would have back to the Heavenly Father. So in that sense, God could already have loved his creation before that creation was actually created. Also, Jesus said in Matthew 19 that we are to love our neighbor as ourself. So even an atheist, if he was on a deserted island, he didn't even believe in God, he could have a healthy love for himself, and continue existing without committing suicide. We can still be loving persons without actually having an object of love in order to be loving people. How much more the self-existent God could have 
a healthy love for himself, and also prophetically love his future creation before that creation actually existed. So the argument that God has to have two other divine persons in order to be a God of love is without any scriptural foundation. Now, Michael mentioned that some scriptures that deal with the Father, uh, I believe it's the Father, but scriptures that deal with the Son coming uh, down from heaven. We must believe that the scriptures teach that Jesus veiled his true identity. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 14, 15, speaks of the millennial reign of Christ. In that time, men will bow before the Messiah, saying, Surely God is in you. There is none else. There is no other God. So they call Jesus God. They're going to call Jesus in the prophetic future, in the millennial reign, God. Surely God is in you. There's no other God. And the next verse says, For verily, or truly, you are a God who hides yourself, O God of Israel, the Savior. Likewise, John 16, 25 says, These things have I spoken to you in figurative language. But the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. And so we find in John 14 that Jesus, when asked uh, by Philip, Lord, show us the Father, he didn't say, I'm going to show you the Father later on. He couldn't lie. He said, he that has seen me has seen the Father. Have I been so long a time with you, Philip, and have you not known me? He that has seen me has seen the Father. He never said, he that has seen me has seen the eternal Son. The scriptures prove, Isaiah 59, 16, that Jesus is the arm of Yahweh revealed who came down from heaven. Isaiah 59, 6, God saw that there was no man and was appalled that there was no one to intervene, so his own arm brought salvation. So if we are to believe Hebrews 2.17 is true, that means God became a man just like every other man. Hebrews 2.17 says that he was fully human in every way, according to the NIV. So Jesus said in John 14.10, The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me is speaking these words and doing these works. So if we are to believe that Jesus is that full incarnation of that only true God, the Father, that even the words that he spoke, not just before Abraham was, I am, but all the words he spoke, even as a man, were truly the words of God, the Father. Yet Jesus, according to Philippians 2, 7, emptied himself of his divine rights and privileges because he still was the king of heaven. He said, before Abraham was, I am. He never said, before Abraham was, I was, as if he was the self-existent God, or as if he was the omnipresent God back then. He still had all of the divine rights as the creator of heaven and earth to speak with authority. He could have turned the stones to bread. He also could have turned the stones to gold if he wanted to. He could have multiplied the loaves and fishes till he was a king over all the earth. He could have kept turning the water into wine. And so, though he was rich, even on earth, yet for our sake, he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. So, Jesus kept uh, that lowly, humble attitude of a bondservant because he was made in the likeness of men. So, he continued to empty himself of his divine privileges. But when Jesus spoke, he truly spoke the words of the Father. So in John 6, 62, when Jesus said, what if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? He was speaking in a, in a way that is figurative 
because he was hiding his true identity as the father. Uh, but he was not lying because he truly is the son of man, because he is the son of mankind through the Virgin Mary. And so he could be uh, not only the son of man, son of God, but he's also the true God in eternal life, according to John 5.20. 1 John 5.20. Uh, John 16, 25 proves that Jesus used veiled speech speaking about the Father. That's why Jesus could say, I'm up in heaven. Uh, I was up in heaven, and now I'm down on earth. But he can also sometimes say, I am up in heaven and on earth at the same time. Because if we believe that Jesus is the full incarnation of that one true God, the Father, then he could claim to be God. So truly, if we believe that Jesus is God, he came down from heaven but as a man, not to do my will as a man, but to do will, the will of the Heavenly Father. Galatians 4.4 4 states that God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law. Thus God sent forth his son who was born of a woman. The Greek word uh, born actually means to come into being, genomehi. So he came into being by being born of a woman. There's nothing in the Greek text that demands that the Son was sent prior to his birth. Galatians 4.4 4 doesn't say God sent forth his Son to be born of a woman. The sensible meaning of the text is that God sent forth his Son who was born of a woman. Of a woman. This is evident in Jesus' prayer in John 17.18 when he said, As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. Since the disciples were sent by Jesus into the world, just as the Father sent Jesus into the world, we have sufficient proof to understand that the Son was sent after he was born at Bethlehem. 1 Timothy 6, 7 says, we brought nothing into this world. That doesn't mean that we pre-existed because we brought nothing into this world. 1 Timothy 3.16 clearly says that he or God was manifest in the flesh. There's nothing in this verse to prove that there is another God the Son person in view. Jesus spoke about glory with his Father, John 17.15. And I'm going to read from the Apostolic Polyglot Interlinear by Charles Vanderpool. And now, Father, you glorify me with yourself, with the glory that I had with you before the world was. So we don't see nothing about uh, Christ actually sharing glory or uh, being eternally in the presence of the Father. In a sense, he was in the presence of the Father, but not in a sense that Trinitarians think so. Uh, Revelation 13 speaks of the Lamb having been already slain from the creation of the world. The words from the creation of the world hold the same essential meaning as the words before the world was. In John 12, 37, through verse 41, Jesus identified as the arm of Yahweh revealed. And so, therefore, these things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Jesus spoke of Christ's glory throughout his prophetic revelations. He saw Christ's glory as the one who had a ministry of miracles, Isaiah 33, 5. He saw Christ's future glory in his virgin birth and being called Emmanuel, God with us, Isaiah 7, 14. He saw Christ's future glory in his ascension to the everlasting throne, Isaiah 9, 7, and 1 Chronicles 29, 23 calls that throne, the throne of David, the throne of Yahweh. Therefore, Isaiah saw Christ's post-incarnational glory and not his alleged pre-incarnational glory. 1 Peter 1, 11 states that the prophets predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glory that would follow. So Jesus did not actually experience glory as the Son prior to the incarnation, only in the mind and plan of God, as the Logos, 
God calls the things which be not as though they were. John 2.11 says, This beginning of signs did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. Again, post-incarnational glory, not pre-incarnational. When we compare Scripture with Scripture, we find that Jesus was speaking about his predestined glory, which he already had with the Father before the world was actually created. I challenge Mr. Burgos to submit a single Scripture to prove that the Son of God actually experienced glory as the Son prior to the Incarnation. Uh, The Scriptures clearly prove that Jesus Christ is the Creator. Hebrews uh, does not prove that Jesus existed as a God the Son person. Although the Scripture does identify him as the Creator, he's identified as Yahweh. It doesn't say the Son of God in that passage. It says Yahweh. According to oneness theology, we believe that that proves that Jesus is that only true God the Father who created all things by his own hands. If we compare Isaiah 64, 8, Yahweh, you are our Father, we are the clay, and we are all the works of your hands, we find the Father is the Creator. Again, Malachi 2.10 says, Have we not one Father, has not one God created us? Hebrews 1.2 states, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Notice, God did not say that, The Son spoke to the Israelite fathers in the Old Testament and then came and spoke to the Israelite fathers again uh, after the Incarnation. It says that the Son spoke to the Israelite fathers during these last days. So this proves that the Son did not speak to the Israelite fathers until the last days. So the Son could not have eternally or literally existed as an angel or a divine person speaking to the Israelite fathers prior to the Incarnation. So God created all things in Christ, for Christ, and through Christ. And so there's two different senses in which God created all things, uh, where the Son is spoken of as creating all things. He created all things as that mighty God and eternal Father, according to Isaiah 9, 6, uh, Malachi 2, 10. But he's also spoken of as the creator in another sense, as the Logos. Because the scripture says that in uh, Christ, and I want, I want to go to... Uh, Actually, I was planning on this in the rebuttal. We're running out of time here. Okay, uh, the scripture says in Hebrews 1, 2, that through whom also he created the ages. The Greek word for for ages there is aeones. It should be translated as ages, which means periods of time or spaces of time. So you can't say that in the Genesis 1 account that God created spaces of time. There's another sense in which Jesus is called the creator. He is the creator as the Logos. In the prophetic mind and plan of God, God calls the things which be not as though they were, Romans 4, 17. So God already, in the prophetic mind of God, he already created all things like a heavenly blueprint in Christ before the world was created. Because ages could not have been actually created, because time periods could not have been created in Genesis 1. So prior to the incarnation, prior to the creation of all things, God already pre-created everything in his heavenly logos, in his mind. So in that sense, God says that he created all things in Christ, Colossians 1, 15, 16. I'm going to quote that. Colossians 1, 15 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
was Jesus born already and then born again after the incarnation? No, but in the mind of God, just as he's spoken of as the lamb slain from the creation of the world in Revelation 13, 8, so uh, Jesus is spoken of as already existing. The incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection and ascension in the mind of God were already accomplished events before those events actually took place. One minute. So, one minute. Uh, Colossians 1.16 goes on to say that in and in Christ, uh, all things were created in heaven, earth, visible and invisible things, whether they be thrones, lordships, rulers and authorities. So in Christ, the human lordships, rulers, authorities of all human history were already pre-created in Christ, for Christ, and through Christ, with Christ in view. That is the reason why he created all things, because he, God in his heart, desired to dwell among the Israelites, his own people forever, thus fulfilling the prophecy in the book of Ezekiel, which says, I will plant my feet among the Israelites forever, and they shall no longer pollute my holy name. So, in the fullness of time, God's desire was to become one of us as the tabernacle of God with men, and he could dwell among us and wipe away all tears from our eyes, and God truly be, will be with us as Emmanuel, God with us as the Savior. That's time. Thank you. Uh, Michael, it is now your turn for your 15-minute rebuttal whenever you're ready. Okay, uh Thank you. While uh, Colossians uh, chapter 1 is on our minds, um, Mr. Ritchie made a, a, pr a pretty significant error. Basically what he told us that when it says that all things were created through the sun, uh, what it basically meant was on account of the sun, that all things were created in view of the sun, in God's prophetic mind, as it were. Uh, the problem is that the grammar does not allow for that. The, the preposition dia is in the accusative case there. Uh, it would have to be in another case to mean that. Um, I find it hard to believe that anyone could read Colossians chapter 1 and come away with the theology that Mr. Ritchie has uh, I, I think it, the text piece for itself. But a couple of things here. Is the glory that Jesus described in John chapter 17, uh, was that glory in the mind of God, in, in the prophetic plan of, of, of the Son within the mind of God, in, in God's logos, in the Father's logos? No. The reason being is because Jesus is asking to be glorified in the Father's presence. We can't isolate the second half of the verse from the first half of the verse. That's exactly what Mr. Ritchie is doing. He's taking the second half of the verse and saying, well, this refers to the plan that was within the mind of God. Well, if you do that, then you have to make the glory that Jesus is petitioning for right then also within the plan and mind of God because there's a syntactical link in the verse. You can't compartmentalize one half of the verse and make it say something different than the first half of the verse. And moreover, I buttressed my understanding uh, of John 17, 5, and, and the fact that Jesus was authentically, that the Son was authentically in the Father's presence with John 
838. Didn't hear a response regarding that, but I'll get back to that on my cross-examination. Um, Mr. Ritchie predicated his uh, refutation of my argument from Hebrews chapter 1, a similar argument that I made with, with James Anderson, um, based upon a textual variance. He quoted uh, Hebrews 2.7 from the King James, uh, which has a very well-known textual variant. Unfortunately, that variant isn't authentic, and it's well-known by textual scholars. Uh, when I took uh, a class in the subject of textual criticism, one of the first things that I learned about was Hebrews 2.7. Um, it's, it's a very well-known variant, and it is wholly inauthentic. Um, the text doesn't say uh, that he put him over er, uh, the work of his hands. What it says is, you made him a little lower than the angels, and you've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. This is simply a reiteration of what we see in the gospel in Matthew 28, that the Son of God, the, the post-resurrection Son of God, has been given dominion. He's been given all authority and power. Uh, so there really isn't an argument there. So again, we have to go back to Hebrews chapter 1, and we have to read what it says regarding the Son of God. We can't wipe away the argument that um, the writer of the Hebrews is making by suggesting, well, God is just merely saying this about the Son, but he really didn't do these things, wink, wink. Listen to what this says. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in the last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. That there is talking about Jesus' exaltation, through whom he also created the world. There's the Son creating the world. God the Father created the world through his Son, not on account of his Son. That would be a different grammatical structure, but through his Son, just like it says in your English translation. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Is God, was God without, was he ever without the radiance of his glory? Of course not. He is the exact imprint of his nature. God's nature is eternal. Mr. Ritchie says that the sun wasn't eternal. But look at what it says here in verses 10 through 12. The Father says, and you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. Mr. Ritchie says, no, the Son didn't exist in the beginning. But the Father says, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. Is the Father lying about this? Well, certainly not. The Father is identifying that the Son was active in the creation just as we see the Holy Spirit active in creation in Genesis 1-3. Mr. Ritchie made no response to the bulk of my argumentation regarding his um, affirmation of the fatherhood of God before the incarnation and indeed before the creation. We didn't hear anything about that. Um, he asked the question, how could the Son be eternal? That would mean that, you know, uh, he, he, he intimated that that sonship um, is is something that implicitly identifies a beginning. Well, I just turned that question around and said, how can we have an eternal father? 
How could we have an eternal father who has no progeny? You can't have it both ways. Um, Mr. Ritchie, in affirming the thesis, has refuted his own position. Um, Mr. Ritchie said numerous times here that the Holy Spirit is, in fact, the Father. Well, then why does the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 26 and following, identify that the Holy Spirit is the one who intercedes on behalf of God's people to the Father. Does God the Father intercede to himself? Well, evidently, according to Mr. Ritchie's theology, <clears throat> let's take a look at John chapter 14, and let's see if, in fact, the Holy Spirit is the Son, or is indeed the Father. Jesus says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. That word another is defined as different, someone other than. Mr. Ritchie would have us believe that it doesn't mean that. Another means the same as. It, defi it defies the, 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 the simple language of the text to suppose that Jesus is identifying him Self as the paraclete that was to come. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that the Son is the Spirit or that the Father is himself the Spirit. Nor does it ever say that the Father is himself the Son. Isaiah 9 6 was mentioned numerous times by Mr. Rissi. Notice what it says there. Unto us a child was born, but a son was given. That's not parallelism. Uh, parallelism that 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 is the uh, prophet identifying that a son is given, but a child is born, referring to the incarnation of the Son of God. He made mention of the this idea about three fathers. Uh, Mr. Ritchie seems to misunderstand that the, the the name father, the appellation, is relational language that is meant to define and convey a special relationship. In the same way that we have angels identified as sons of God in, for example, Job, uh, that doesn't convey an ontological reality that is somehow parallel with human beings. Rather, it's relational language that's meant to convey a kind of relationship that's peculiar to the Father and to the sons of God, in that case the angels, and much is the same, uh, same situation with the Son. We, we cannot take the relationship between the father and son and reduce it to the crass human relationships that we have because we're dealing with God. One of my favorite verses, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 14, says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Paul has no problem saying this because he does not see the father as being the person who fills all three of these roles. The love of God, that's speaking of a kind of relational, um, a kind of relational uh, uh, engagement. The grace of Christ, again, speaking of the kind of relationship that we are to have with Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Three distinct kinds of relationships there they are laid out in, in plain view for everyone to read. Now let's talk about John chapter 17, verse 3. I was challenged on that. 
<clears throat> is the Father identified as the only true God? Absolutely. But to identify the Father as the only true God is to identify and affirm the Son's deity as well, because the Son is not a different God than the Father. Mr. Ritchie simply misunderstands Trinitarianism at that point. I'm not a tritheist. I don't believe in three separate gods. I believe the Son and the Spirit and the Father are one and the same God. The only way in which the Father, Son, and the Spirit are differentiated is the way in which they relate to each other and to creation. And so Mr. Ritchie, in, in that sense, has erected a straw man. Um, we really need to understand the kind of God that Mr. Ritchie is asking us to believe in. Mr. Ritchie is asking us to believe in uh, Jesus who loved, honored, obeyed, and prayed to his transcendent self. The relationship that is so carefully laid out in the Gospels between the Father and Son uh, that I made mention of in my opening presentation, that relationship is, is simply a dynamic, according to Mr. Ritchie's view, between uh, the transcendent God and his incarnate self. It's a sham in that case. It's not a genuine relationship. Did the Father exist in a relationship with the Son before the world existed? He certainly did. In John chapter 17, verse 24, <clears throat> Jesus identified that the Father was loving his Son. Was he loving the idea of his Son? It's not what the text says. Not the idea of the Son. Nowhere in Jeremiah does it say that God was loving Jeremiah before the world existed. That text doesn't exist. In fact, I would challenge Mr. Ritchie to come up with a text anywhere that's even close to paralleling um, what John 17, 24 says. And you see, it's a great tragedy because in John 17, 22, the kind of love, that perfect divine love between the Father, the lover, and the Son, his beloved, that perfect divine love is said to be given to those who are in Christ in verse 22. That the Father might love us just as he loved the Son. What kind of love would that be if there is no object to that love other than one's in incarnate self? Again, with Mr. Ritchie's view, we have a God whose natural estate is utter solitude, utter loneliness. And the only way we know that God is by way of his mediated uh, visit to us on earth, where there's this charade of a relationship that goes on between him and his incarnate self. It's not what the scripture teaches. Rather, that is confusion. What the scripture teaches is a genuine relationship between an eternal father who has an eternal son. And uh, with that, I will concede the balance of my time. Okay, thank you very much. Um, it's at this point that we're going to move into the first of our two rounds of cross-examination, and Stephen will be doing the asking. He'll have 10 minutes to ask Michael questions. And just as a reminder, uh, the person who is doing the asking is the one who controls the time. So uh, the person who is receiving questions, just be aware that uh, if, the per if the person asking questions would like to move on, he does have that prerogative within reason. So uh, with that, uh, Stephen, when you're ready to go, I'll begin your 10-minute timer. 
Okay, Mr. Burgos. <clears throat> Isaiah 53, 1 and John 12, 37 through 38 prove that Jesus is the arm of Yahweh revealed. Mr. Burgos, whose arm is Jesus? Is Jesus the arm of a God the Son? Or is he the arm of God the Father? I know God's anthropomorphically speaking, but whose arm is Jesus? <clears throat> Your question is presupposed on the idea that, um, well, it's presupposed on Unitarianism, actually, uh, now that I think about it. But um, Jesus is the incarnate Son of God. Uh, he is not two persons. Uh, he is not um, uh, different than uh, his incarnate self. And so to ask whether or not he was the arm of the sun is nonsensical, at least according to the Trinitarian view. Um, when it talks about uh, the incarnate son being the arm of the Lord, uh, the way that I understand that phrase, the arm of the Lord, it, it's an idiom that has been used uh, throughout the scripture, uh, places in Exodus uh, where Yahweh saves the people of Israel out of Egypt with a mighty arm, an outstretched arm. Uh, it's meant to indicate the working power of God, uh, not a little arm, a literal arm. Uh, so the way that I would see that is uh, that the Son of God uh, incarnate is the arm of the Lord, uh, and we could say, okay, yeah, he's the arm of the Father. I'd, I'd be fine with that. Uh, but I think the arm of the Lord, the arm of Yahweh is sufficient. Okay, so that's not a clear answer. So you're saying that it, the arm of Yahweh, it is uh, the Father's arm or it is the Son's arm? Whose arm is the arm of Yahweh in Isaiah 53? Uh, of course, John the Apostle identified Jesus as the arm of Yahweh. So you're stating that the arm of Yahweh is the Father? Am I correct when I heard you say that? No, no, no. I'm afraid you misunderstood me. No. You asked uh, <clears throat> who the arm belonged to, essentially, which yes. I, I, I think is a poor understanding of the text to begin with because we're talking about idiomatic language. Uh, to ask to whom the arm belongs is, is to move beyond what the text has intended to communicate. Who does the arm belong to? It belongs to Yahweh. Okay, uh, so when, he, God, when a God anthropomorphically speaks of himself, he always speaks of himself as having one heart, one soul. Uh, even the scripture says our God is a, is a man of war. Okay, we know God is not a man, but anthropomorphically, God is saying that only true God the Father is saying that he became our salvation. By, by the arm of Yahweh revealing himself as such, it sounds to me, why would God anthropomorphically use that kind of language if he was not the arm of Yahweh, the only true God, the Father? Uh, because uh, intrinsic in your question, you're assuming that, that the Father is the only one who's Yahweh. I reject that, that presupposition. I don't think that's accurate at all. The Son is Yahweh. Uh the Father is Yahweh, and the, and the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Yahweh. So uh, the basis of your question uh, is, is uh, hold something that I don't affirm. So I, uh, Let me move on then. Let me move on. Did your alleged co-equal pre-incarnate God the Son person ever lose any of his divine attributes, such as omnipresence when he emptied himself to become a man? 
Uh, no, no, of course not. He never lost any of his omnipresence. He never lost any attributes, divine I attributes. Know, no, I believe God is immutable. So Okay. No. So then I heard you teach in Philippians 2.7 that the son emptied himself. What exactly did the son empty of himself of if he's not emptying himself of his divine attributes? <clears throat> well, uh, the way the way in which he emptied himself is made evident by the apostle Paul himself. Um, he uses a couple of participles, uh, namely taking and being born. Um, the way in which he emptied himself was by taking the form of a slave, being made in the likeness of men. Uh, so that's how he emptied himself. Uh, what did he empty himself of? By taking the form of a servant is the physical taking the form of a morphe of a servant. But what did he empty himself of prior to the incarnation as an alleged God, the son person? Uh, I would say that the way in which he emptied himself was, number one, metaphorical, because Paul didn't have a habit of using that word uh, in a wooden literal way, and that he emptied himself, uh, we could say that he emptied himself of the exercising of the kind of divine glory that he had with the Father prior to the incarnation, and that's why he asked for it and petitions it for the Father back, uh, to which he receives on the cross. That's why John seventeen five is there. Okay, I'm going to move on then. Okay. Um, 2 Samuel 7.14 records the prophetic words of God the Father concerning his future son during the Old Testament time period. God the Father says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Here is the verse which says that the father was a father to the son, and the son was a son to his father prior to the virgin birth. You, under, you hear me? Yeah, I didn't hear a question in that, so maybe you okay. want to... Okay, where is the verse which says that the father was a father to the son, and the son was a son to his father prior to the virgin birth? Where is the verse that says the father was a father to the son prior to the virgin birth? Yes. Um, think about that. Okay, I'm going to read the scripture again. God the Father said, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. If the an alleged God the Son was up in heaven when God the Father spoke those words, would it not what? be ridiculous for, for God to say, I will be a father to this son person? If he already uh, no, existed as a God no, the no. Son up in heaven? Uh, no, the answer to that question is no, because I believe that's declarative. I, I don't think that uh, the relationship between the Father and Son... Uh, began in time, uh, in in for in numerous texts texts that I would base that upon. Uh, but to answer your previous question, what text would I would appeal to to establish the uh, relationship, uh, the, the father son relationship prior to uh, the incarnation? Um, I would establish that uh, uh, through uh, places like uh, Philippians chapter two, which you just alluded to. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, uh, the prologue there, right in the beginning of that pericope, I, I think that it's pretty clear that uh, since the Son was the one through whom the Father created uh, the universe, created the, the worlds, I, I think that you're a little bit confused regarding what the meaning of Ionios is within that context. I, I think that those texts are more than sufficient to establish the fact that the Father and the Son existed in perfect union 
before the incarnation. Oh, let me go with uh, the, the fact next question. Can I go with the next question? Okay, you answer me. Can you cite a single verse of scripture from Genesis to Malachi, which clearly demonstrates a relationship between the alleged three divine persons? Please submit proof that the Father and Son had an actual relationship, a dialogue between one another, or proof that the Holy Spirit had a dialogue with the Father or the Son, which actually occurred in the Hebrew Scriptures prior to the Incarnation. Where is the verse that says that the Father and Son were speaking to each other, dialoguing back and forth? Hmm. Yeah, I I don't... um, A couple of things here. I I don't even need to do that. Um, John 17.24... Uh, identifies that there was a relationship between the father and son uh, because Jesus identifies the fact that the father loved him, not loved the idea of him, but actually loved him before the world existed. Um, So to me, if there is love and and love does require an object uh, to not have an object to love is, uh, Okay. So you don't generally have considered generally considered conceit, uh, which would be a sin. Okay. So, um, you, so you don't have a scripture that actually shows the dialogue with the Father and Son actually speaking to each other prior to the incarnation. You've got to go to the New Covenant scriptures. Uh, so but, the go new, the next, but the new, yeah. Well, you made a question, and I'm going to answer you. Uh, okay. The New Covenant scriptures do talk about things that happened before the New Covenant scriptures were written. Of course. Uh, so John seventeen, right? So John seventeen twenty four is referencing a time before creation was made. So I'm sure you would agree that before creation was made is a time before the old covenant, and okay, because that text that says, okay, okay that, I want to move on now. Uh, actually, Stephen, the, the, the time, the ten minutes is up. But you're going to have another okay. ten minutes to ask okay, after. Go ahead, I'm sorry, so, I wanted to move to the next question. But I, sure, and, and you'll you'll have the opportunity, uh, Michael. It's now your turn to ask Stephen questions for ten minutes whenever you're ready. All right, let me just reset my timer here. Okay, thank you. Um, just as a, a point of clarification, Mr. Richie, on your website you stated, quote, the man Christ Jesus is God the Father with us as a man. Is it your position, therefore, that Jesus Christ is the Father who came in the likeness of human flesh? Yes, Jesus Christ is not God the Father with us as God the Father. Jesus Christ is God the Father who was made like unto his brethren, fully human in every way. But yes, his true identity is that Father, because he said, the Father who dwells in me, he does the works. So he's the full incarnation of that one true God the Father. Wonderful. Um, Romans chapter 8, verse 3 tells us that the Son was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh. So which is correct, your assertion that Jesus is the Father in flesh, or the Bible statement that Jesus is the Son in the likeness of flesh? Well, of course, Jesus is the Son of God because he was born of a woman, born under the law, according to Galatians 4, 4. So we believe that the Son was made, was born through that woman, and then he was sent out into the world just as the disciples were sent out into the world. So we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, but he wasn't just the Son of God. He pre-existed 
as mm-hmm. that only true God, the Father. That's why he said, he that has seen right. me has you, seen the You Father. previously said, uh, you previously affirmed anyway, that Jesus Christ is the Father who came in a likeness of sinful flesh. Do you still stand by that? Yes, he is. His true okay. identity Very good. is the Father. So when Romans 8, 3 says the Son was sent in a likeness of sinful flesh, uh, which was which is correct? The Bible in Romans 8, 3 or your previous assertion? No, of course. After the child born and son was given... That son was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh. You're you're trying okay. to read into the text. Right, you're right, assuming that there is a pre-incarnational God, the Son person, who was sent yeah, not, uh, in the flesh. But that's according to according to Hebrews chapter one verses ten through twelve, who does the Father describe as the one who laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning? Okay, the the passage is out of uh, I believe it's Psalm uh, one hundred two, mm-hmm. and I don't see it where the Father is actually stating this. Of course, uh, verse 8, God the Father was speaking concerning his future son from uh, Psalm 45. But it goes on to quote another passage of Scripture out of Psalm 102, and I don't necessarily see that 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 verse was actually the Father saying this. The Apostle... Are you you aware that verses 8 through 12 are one sentence? Uh, I see. Yes, I see. In context, in Hebrews, it's it's all together. But there were two different. I'm talking about the Greek Greek text of Hebrews chapter one, beginning at verse eight, going to verse 12. Are you aware that that text is one sentence and maintains one subject? Are you aware of that? Of course, it's maintaining. It's saying that Jesus is. uh, Who is is, is Hebrews one? Who's the subject of? Yeah, who's the subject of Hebrews 1.8? Hebrews 1.8, it says, and to the son he said. And who's okay, the subject of Hebrews 1.10? Let me turn there, actually, because I'm going off my memory. Okay, Hebrews 1.8, right in front of me. Okay, go ahead. What's who's your the question? subject of Hebrews 1.10? But to the son he says, your throne of God is forever and ever. It says, you love righteousness and hated lawlessness, therefore God, your God, has anointed you. So this passage is out of Psalm 45, 6, and 7, which speaks of the man, the son is the man here, uh, who would be called God because he will ascend to the throne of David. So it's a yeah, prophetic Richie, of the future son. I'm asking you a very simple question. According to Hebrews 1, 10 through 12, who is described as the one who laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning? Who is the subject Yahweh. of that text? Yahweh, because we where believe... Is it, where does it say Yahweh in that text? Uh, it actually says, and you, Yahweh. Uh, no, it doesn't. It says, it uses the, the phrase Kyrios, doesn't use the phrase Yahweh. Well, of course, if you go back Who to... Who is the subject of that text, sir? If you go back to Psalm 102, if you look at verse number 22, the divine name Yahweh is there, so the context proves that this is Yahweh. Actually, again, it doesn't because the author of Hebrews so is referring from the Septuagint. Mr. Ritchie, are you married? Yes. Would you consider your relationship with your wife to be characterized or even defined as loving? Of course. Can you tell me, Mr. Ritchie, what was the father doing before creation was made? I will only speak as the scripture uh, has said, but I believe that God... Uh, eternally existed alone and by himself. It doesn't say exactly what he was doing, but I do know he was already for choosing his elect. It says in Ephesians 1.4, Ephesians uh, 1.11 says that uh, we are predestined according to the plan of him, the 
plan of God the Father. Only prior to the creation, God was already uh, drawing up the plans like a heavenly blueprint before he actually created anything in Genesis chapter 1. Okay, on your website you wrote, the Bible clearly proves that the father and son relationship did not literally exist in eternity past, end quote. However, John 17, 24 tells us that before the foundation of the world, the father was loving his son. Doesn't the fact that the father was in a loving relationship with the son contradict your assertion that a relationship didn't exist between the father and son? No, because God already predestined all things. If you go to Romans chapter 8, uh, verse 29, 30, it says uh, clearly that God's elect were predestinated, and we were already, along with Christ, we were predestinated, and we were chosen uh, then verse 30 goes on to say that those whom he justified, he also glorified. So God already glorified God's elect. He already chose uh, the Son of God in prophetic anticipation. So uh, in God's in God's mind, in God's logos, this was already drawn up in God's okay, miraculous so foreknowledge. Is it right that you're saying that uh, the Father was basically loving the idea of his Son, the predestined plan of his Son? Is that right? Is that well, how you John, understand I, John seventeen twenty four? Right. I, I believe in taking the totality of scriptures, like you yourself said in your book, we got to put scripture with scripture. They have to harmonize. And if I go to Jeremiah 1, 5, God said concerning Jeremiah, before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. So in that sense, we could say that God already knew the son and knew his, all of his elect. And also in God's miraculous ability to foreknow the future, he could foreknow Jeremiah's reciprocal love back to him. So you would say that you would say that the glory that the son said he had before the world existed, and the love that he said he had from the father before the world existed, both of these were in the mind of God. Basically, is that right? Of course, Jesus was no ordinary man. Uh, A greater than Moses uh, came, according to the words of Jesus. So Jesus was not like any other elect person because his knowledge was much more transcendent than any apostle or prophet, so he could speak like no man ever spoke. According to Romans 8.26, the Holy Spirit intercedes to the Father on behalf of the people of God. If the Spirit is the Father, how can he be said to intercede to the Father? Well, when we look at Scripture, we find uh, Hebrews 2.17 that says that God actually became a man. As the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he likewise took part of the same. Then verse 17 goes on to say he was made like his brethren, fully human in every way. So Jesus was made as a fully complete human being. And <clears throat> Yeah, I don't think you quite time. understand my, my question. Romans 8.26 okay, states that the, the Holy Spirit intercedes to the Father on behalf of the people of God. If the Spirit is the Father... How can the Spirit be said to intercede to the Father? Okay, I'm trying to answer your question. Okay, so the human spirit of Jesus, according to Ephesians 4.10, uh, that human spirit of Christ went into the lower part of Hades while his body uh, was dead outside of Jerusalem. He resurrected his own body. Then he ascended up into heaven. And so his human spirit, according to Ephesians 4.10, ascended up above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So the human spirit of Christ was a limited human spirit during the incarnation, during his earthly ministry, and that human spirit ascended up far above all the heavens that he might fill all things, and that human spirit was, again, incorporated, like Jason Dooley has has written, a oneness apologist. So you're, infused, you're basically saying— I mean, Can I finish, sir? He infused that, that 
that human spirit, because the Holy Spirit became a human spirit, according to Luke 135, and that spirit, after his mission was complete, became a life-giving spirit, and that spirit was poured out upon all flesh on the day of Pentecost until now, and so the human uh, God infused or incorporated back the human spirit of priestliness into his spirit. That's how we have the spirit of the Son in our okay, hearts, crying, so Abba, Father. Yeah, God you're basically so saying totally right, so. You're basically saying that the human spirit of Christ is what's identified as the Holy Spirit who intercedes to the Father on behalf of the elect. That's what you're saying, right? If we are to believe that God where, truly where, became where, a man, oh, Mike, Mike, trying to answer you in, in Hebrews two seventeen. God truly became a man. We must believe that. He, he wasn't just God in an external shell of flesh. He was fully human in every way. So he really became a okay. human spirit with a capacity to pray and a capacity to be tempted by the devil. Okay, we'll have an opportunity to continue this line of questioning should Michael choose in his second round of cross-examination. But the time is up this time. So uh, if you guys uh, are ready to continue on to our second round of cross-examination, then, Steve, you're, uh, you'll have a second 10 minutes to ask questions of Michael beginning whenever you start uh, speaking. Okay, Mr. Burgos, the title son in Luke 135 is, according to the Greek text, euios. According to Thayer's Greek lexicon, the word euios literally means a son, male offspring, offspring, or an inheritor. Can you please explain how a son could be an offspring or an inheritor and still have always existed as an eternal offspring, and an eternal son throughout eternity past. Yes, I, I'd be happy to. First of all, uh, it's huios, not huios. And, and secondly, um, lexicons are only as helpful as as long as we keep the context in mind. Um, and, and lexical semantics must be uh, driven and mediated by the context of which we find words in. So Luke one thirty five tells us that uh, the Son of God came into existence, and Trinitarians and myself affirm that because we believe the Son of God was incarnated at a point in time. The Son of God became an authentic human being. He wasn't always a human being. He was born in Bethlehem in a stable. Uh, so he uh, subjected himself to the limitations of human existence at a point in time. He became a human being at a point in time. He was begotten. At a point in time, okay. uh, in so the womb why of was, Mary. Why was the son, the title son, uh, spoken of as an eternal God, the son, if the reason why the son was given? I'm going to read Luke 135. The reason why the title son was given was because of the incarnation. It says, the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Can you give us a reason why Jesus is called the Son of God as an offspring or an inheritor other than the New Testament reason given in Luke 135? Yes, because I believe the relationship between the Father and Son preexisted his human birth. So naturally he would be the Son uh, both before and after his birth, just as the Father is the Father before and after his birth. But this passage of Scripture gives us a reason why the title Son is given. It was because of the supernatural conception in the Virgin. Uh, right, so how could this title be addressed to an eternal God person? Because you're presupposing the the fact that there's not a continuity of identity between the Son of God pre and post incarnation, and that's a presupposition I don't share with you. 
Okay, let me go on. Psalm 2-7, and I quote, You are my son, this day have I begotten you. The Hebrew word day is yom, which means a specific day throughout the Old Testament. And the Hebrew word yalad means begotten throughout the Old Testament. So how could the Son of God have been eternally begotten or eternally born on an eternal day? Uh, I don't believe he was eternally born on an eternal day. I think that's absurd. Okay, you do believe that the Son is eternally begotten? Most Trinitarian theologians teach that the Son has been eternally begotten. Do you hold that? Uh, I do. Uh, the, the word in the creeds is monogenes, which uh, is poorly translated as begotten. It doesn't mean begotten as in, um, you know, Enosh begot, you know, whoever. Uh, what it means is that he's the unique one, the one and only. Um, and I, you know, would encourage you to go and take a look at a uh, decent lexicon to see what, in fact, that word means. And that is, in fact, the word that is used within the creeds. Okay, well, again, uh, the title son is means the offspring or an inheritor. Are you not saying that the son had an eternal beginning because you believe in an eternal begetting? No, in the same way that the father is an eternal father, the son is an eternal son. Uh, if son- you say... If you say that the son had a beginning, then you're saying that the father had a beginning as well. Uh, the two aren't separably linked, and that's what I pointed out in my well, I'm not statement. saying the father. I believe the father has always eternally existed from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. I do not believe that the son had an everlasting existence as the son because he okay, became right. the son and, God and the father. My argument previously was that it is absurd to believe an eternal father and not an eternal son. Uh, a father is a relational title. Son is a relational title. The two go hand in hand. To not have a son, you have a father with no progeny for all eternity. Okay, in your book, you quoted Acts thirteen thirty three, and you stated that the word uh, begotten uh, really meant resurrection. Uh, it, it actually, the, I'm going to quote the verse. God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus as it also is written in the book of Psalms, you are my son, today have I begotten you. In your book, you stated it meant the resurrection. Can you clarify that? Uh, yeah, I'm turning to the page here. Um, yeah, actually, I didn't say that. Uh, Edward Dalcor did. Um, and I believe you what Alcor was, was true, though. In your book, you affirmed that that was true. <clears throat> yeah, I, I, I certainly do. Um, when it says that, uh, um, when when the text says that uh, that he was, um, let me let me just pull it back. Why are you here. saying that? Uh, the, the the Greek word for begotten here is geneho, which means to beget or give birth to. But you said that this verse is talking about the resurrection. The Greek word for resurrection is anastasis. But you twisted the scripture to try to say, of course, according to your Trinitarian apologist, you quoted that the verse really meant uh, resurrection rather than begotten. Well, I would enjoy you, Mr. Ritchie, to start asking questions instead of making so many assertions regarding uh, my alleged twisting of the scriptures. Because okay, this well, is a cross-examination, and you do intend to ask questions, right? Okay, well, that's so, what I'm asking Now that questions. I have Acts 13 before me, um, it says, and we bring you the good news that was promised to God our fathers, that he has fulfilled to us 
um, their children by raising Jesus, as it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son and today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken this way. So it would seem to me that the contextual reading is referring to the declarative uh, titling of you are my son, today I have begotten you, in reference to the resurrection. And um, in looking at Mr. Doc, Dr. Dalcor's uh, statements, he says, <clears throat> hence in verse 3, indicates that he was already the son of God when he was declared to be the son of God. And he's talking about Romans uh, 1.3 there. Uh, furthermore, as with Hebrews 1.5, which you alluded to earlier, uh, Paul in Acts 13.32-34 cites the same passage, Psalm 2.7, but referring to Jesus' resurrection. Consequently, if today in Hebrews 1.5 and 5.5 means that the Son did not exist before Bethlehem, as oneness teachers suppose, then today in Acts 13 would likewise mean that he did not exist before his resurrection. Seems like pretty good logic there by Mr. Okay, let, let, me, uh, let, me, let me ask the question. Okay, but verse 34 says, As for the fact that you raised him from the dead, no longer to return to decay. Then he quoted Psalm 1610, You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. So in verse 33, he was not talking about the resurrection until verse number 34. So you can't say that begotten here means yeah, resurrection. Is that a question? Because it sounds like a statement. You said it doesn't refer to the resurrection, but then why does Jesus, uh, it, it says by the by the apostle, this he has fulfilled to us their children by raising. Uh, right, thirty four. Verse thirty four refers to the resurrection. But no, was, ver, I'm, I'm reading verse thirty three, sir. Verse thirty three says this: This he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm. By raising right. Jesus is referring to the resurrection. Okay, uh, as so the context. Verse thirty four is the resurrection. All right, so let, let no, me move on. Because no, no, sir, I was reading verse 33, uh, which soundly refutes your assertion. Verse 33 speaks about uh, the begotten Son of God, and this verse 34 moves on to talk about... <clears throat> verse 33 says, This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm, You are my yeah, son, okay. today I have begotten Okay, him. now let me, let me take this point. Verse 34, verse 33 does not address the resurrection. He just addressed the Son as he who would be resurrected. Resurrected. Verse 34 says, as for the fact that he raised him from the dead. So then verse 34, 35, then quotes Psalm 1610, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. So you're trying to twist the word. Uh, I don't know. I'm taking the word at face value because you're making statements right now in a cross-examination once again. So just want to make that real clear. Okay. Verse 33 on. uses the uh, let me, word. Let me move on, Mr. Burgos. Let me move on. Because we're taking way too long. Got other questions. Isaiah 43.10 says, You are my witnesses, says Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen. So we know God the Father is the speaker. That you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. I, even I, am Yahweh. Beside me there is no Savior. John 8.24, Jesus said, If you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. This is a direct quote from Isaiah 43.10, in which God the Father, who spoke of his future chosen servant, stated that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Jesus said, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. How is it that Jesus claimed to be the same I am he as God the Father in John 8, 24? 
And Mike, uh, Mike, just so you know, try to keep your answer brief because the 10 minutes is over and then we'll switch. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I believe that Jesus is Yahweh and I don't think there's an ontological distinction between the Father and the Son, at least the Son uh, outside of his incarnation. Uh, so uh, uh, if the Father is Yahweh, uh, uh, I, first of all, I don't, I don't see where, where you're, you're getting that that was the Father in Isaiah 43. You've assumed that. That's something that has yet to be proven. Uh, so I'll just leave it there. All right. So uh, with that 10 minutes over, we'll now turn up, turn back to Mike. Uh, you have 10 minutes to cross-examine Steve whenever you're ready to begin. Uh, Mr. Ritchie, you've said numerous times that the Father existed alone uh, before the Incarnation and also before creation. Um, how, how exactly was he the Father? Uh, was he the Father in light of creation? Or was he a father apart from the creation? Well, I would say that the scriptures teach that he is the father in the sense of being the father of all creation. Okay, so uh, is that is it the case then that you're saying that God derives his eternal identity as father uh, by the fact that he was going to create? Is, is that your view? Of course, because God already knew, and God is all-knowing. He knew before the creation was even uh, actually created. Not only did he have a heavenly blueprint where God already predestined God's elect, even the Lamb's Book of Life speaks of God's elect being written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and it speaks of uh, the Son of God as the Lamb already slain from the creation of the world. So, at some point of time, whether it was from eternity past, the Bible doesn't tell us, but at some point in time, God decided to create the angels, obviously first, and then okay, the that, human that's great. I don't want to get too far off too far off track here. Um, so, if God the Father's identity is predicated on creation, doesn't that make him dependent on creation for his identity? No, I don't believe that the self-existent one is dependent on anything. God created all but, things for his own good pleasure. So did you just say that he was father in view of creation? Of course he's the father. Has creation always existed, sir? Well, we don't know how, how long or how, how, how much time in eternity passed. Perhaps God always. Are you suggesting uh, that creation is eternal? In, in Christ before the creation of the world. Was creation eternal, sir? Was creation eternal? Um, well, I, I don't believe that creation is eternal. There had to be a specific point in time where God actually did the creating. Sure. Okay. And so you've said today uh, that God the Father uh, derives his identity, uh, the fatherhood of God is, that is, the eternal fatherhood of God, uh, in view of the fact that he would create. Does that not make God the Father dependent upon creation for his identity as father. Yahweh is a self-existent one. I would say that the title father uh, is correctly designated for the only true God uh, as Yahweh. Uh, so I, I, I don't like to say dependent upon his creation, but yes, the title father was given because he is our heavenly father who created all things. I don't okay, see great. how that proves I, I, anything against the, the uh, oneness I do. of God, the monotheism of the Bible. <clears throat> Regarding um, 1 Timothy 3.16, uh, 
um, where the King James states God was manifest in the flesh. If God was manifest in the flesh, does not logic demand that God existed previous to his manifestation? Of course. We believe that he who became the Son is that mighty God and eternal Father. Right. Are you aware that the, the word of the Father, the Holy Spirit, is the Spirit of the Father who became the Son of God, as God with us as a man? Are you aware that the operative verb uh, in that phrase, God was manifest in the flesh, is uh, in the passive voice? Well, I could also say, I'm not sure exactly what you mean in the Greek text, but we could also say that God already predestined the Son as well as predestinating us. So we were chosen in Christ, Ephesians 1, 4, before the creation of the world. So So in a sense that the Son, in God's logos, in God's prophetic anticipation— uh, the son was already born. The son was already slain from the creation of the world. So in God's mind, the crucifixion and the sending of Christ was already an accomplished event. Who, whose active work affected God to be manifest in the flesh? What was the question, Mr. Burgos? Whose, whose active work affected God to be manifest in the flesh? Because, again, it's in the passive voice. It means that... Um, God was manifest by the active work of another. So who was that other? Whose active work affected God to be manifest in the flesh? Well, like I said before, prior to the creation, God already pre-created all things in Christ before he actually created anything. That's why it says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, that uh, God created all things through Christ and it spoke of him creating the ages. Aeonus is used there, not cosmos, which means the physical worlds or physical universe. So the Greek text says it was the ages, which literally means the periods of time. So oh, God, the Father already created, listen, the period of time, that means the ages could have been actually created are to those ages such as the age of grace actually taking place. Right, so... Um Speaking of Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 2.7, you predicated your re- refutation of Hebrews 1.10-12 being about the Son upon a textual variant. Uh, were you aware of that? Uh, no, I'm not aware of that. Okay, uh, why did you choose to quote the King James there as opposed to the NIV, which you had quoted numerous times in your opening statement? Well, I often compare. I love uh, the New American Standard Bible. I like to go to the interlinear, so I, I, I don't know. I usually use the King James because it's the, the, the translation that we want as Pentecostals normally use. So yeah, right. I'm so, familiar with that, but I, I like to go into the Greek, and I don't look at the King James as the only uh, <clears throat> translation. I think it's actually a poor translation in many cases. Mm-hmm. So uh, why did you choose the KJV, if you're familiar with using these other translations, at that particular verse? Was it because there's an extra clause? In that okay. text, what is the verse you're referring to? So I can Hebrews, look at it. Hebrews two seven. Okay, Hebrews two seven. Okay, it says, and and of the angels, he says, who makes his. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm looking at one seven two seven. Um, you have made him a little lower than the angels. You crown him with glory and honor, and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. This is actually a quote from Psalm chapter eight, verses four through six. Yes, I'm well aware of that, but are you aware that the phrase, uh, put them over the works of your hands, is a textual variant that is not found in the earliest of manuscripts, and it is not found in the critical edition of the New Testament, either the NAS, uh, the NA28 or the UBS5? Are you aware of that? 
Okay, so you're saying both the Hebrew text in Psalm 8, 4 through 6, it doesn't appear in the Hebrew text, nor does no, it appear no. in the Greek text? That is, that, what you're saying? That, is, that is not what I'm saying. Uh, I will reiterate my question. Were you aware when you chose to quote from the King James that this verse was different in the King James than other translations like the NASB or the NIV, which are all based on modern critical texts. Were you aware of that? Okay, I, I suppose you have the New American Standard Bible there. Then could you please quote it, the New American Standard Bible, so I can see what that says? You've made him. I don't have uh, that. You've made him uh, for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything into subjection for his feet. You predicated your refutation of Hebrews chapter 1 based upon the clause that is omitted in that text. Why did you do that? No, I didn't, because you just quoted the, the verse that says, putting all things under his feet. So if God the Father put all things under the feet of the Son, well, that would mean that the Son didn't actually create anything as the Son, because the Father did the creating, and he set or appointed the Son. Where does it reference creation in Hebrews 2, 7, or 8? Where does it reference creation in Hebrews 2, 7, or 8? Well, uh... You appointed him over the works of your hands. Yeah, right. That's the disputed clause that I mentioned um, numerous times now, which is a textual variant. Outside of that textual variant, which is decidedly inauthentic, where do you find creation mentioned in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 7 or 8? Okay, well, look at the entire verse 8, the, the entire context. For in that he put all in subjection under him, obviously the Father put all things in subjection under the sun, he you see, nothing you see creation. In... Could you let me finish, sir? I, I would like to finish reading the verse. I didn't cut you off. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. So right now, Jesus Christ has not uh, yet been set or or put all the things. The all the things put under him talks about the creation. So okay, God so, the Father put all the creation under the rulership of the Son. Your argument based upon uh, Hebrews 2.7 uh, previously was that because it attributes creation uh, to the Son, um, even though the Son didn't actually do any of the creating, uh, that uh, this effectively uh, makes it declarative that, that although the Son didn't really create um, the Father's attributing creation to him. Isn't that correct? In this text, in, in Hebrews 2, 7 and 8, the Father's attributing creation to the Son? No. Okay, Mike, I'm sorry, but the 10 minutes has been passed by a, a few seconds, so we've got to okay, wrap great. our cross-examination up. Okay, uh, so good, very good. At this point now, <clears throat> the cross-examination is over. We're going to move into our second round of rebuttals, this time only 10 minutes rather than 15 and Stephen, you're up first, so when you're ready to go, I will begin your 10-minute timer. Okay. Uh, Michael Burgo said the sun um, – I'm, I'm not exactly sure what he said. Uh, he, Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of Yahweh were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. So when we compare Scripture with, with other Scriptures, we find that 
God did not use an agent like an angel to create all things. That would be like Arianism, like Jehovah's Witnesses teach. But God created all things by his spoken word. Hebrews 11, chapter 1, clearly says that God created the worlds by his spoken word. The Greek word rhema is used. By the word of God were the heavens made. And so the Son is the Father uh, prior to the creation. Uh, Michael seems to believe that I'm stating that the Son did not have a pre-existence. The Son had a pre-existence as that only true God, the Father. But when the fullness of time had come, that Son incarnated himself as the man Christ Jesus. John 5.26 clearly states, Jesus speaking, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. So it's clear that the Father had no one create him. He has life in himself. But God the Father granted the Son to have a life in himself. So this is proof that the Son had a clear beginning and a begetting. Uh Romans 8.26 was brought up where the, the Son, uh, the God has uh, sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Well, we go to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 10. That Son, that human Son, according to Scripture, was three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He ascended, resurrected His own body. He ascended up above all the heavens that He might fill all things. And that Holy Spirit that was poured out, God infused that Holy Spirit after fulfilling the mission. He became a human spirit. The Holy Spirit, Luke 135, came over Mary. It doesn't say God the Son did it. It said the Holy Spirit did it. So since Jesus said, the words that I speak unto you are not mine, but the Father's words, and since Jesus said in uh, John 14, 24, the word, the Greek word there is Lagos, the Lagos, the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's words, he must be the Father, the Father dwelling in the Son. He didn't say that God the Son gave him the words, he said he spoke the words of God the Father. So the Son had a, a day in which he was begotten. God the Father granted the Son to have life in himself. Uh, John 17, 24 states that God the Father loved the Son before the world was created. Yet Jeremiah 1, 5 proves that God already knew the prophet Jeremiah before he was born. God said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. So again, since God already knew Jeremiah before he was born, it is possible to say that God already loved Jeremiah through God's ability to foreknow Jeremiah's anticipated reciprocal love. That was why Jesus said, you love me before the world was created. And again, uh, Romans 4.17 states that God calls the things which do not exist as though they already did exist. Revelation 17.8 states that God's elect have had their names written in the book of life before the creation of the world, even before they actually existed. So God already loved us and Christ before the world was created, if we are to allow ourselves to think like God thinks, we will see that God already loved Christ and his elect before the world was created. For God calls the things which be not as though they already were. John chapter 17, verse 5, Jesus said, uh, The glory which I had with you before the world was. 
Jesus also said in John 17, 22, the glory which you have given me, I have given them. Just as God the Father already gave predestined glory to the Son before he actually existed as the child born and son given, so also God the Father gave predestined glory to his elect before his elect actually existed. Ephesians 1, 4 says he chose us in Christ before the creation of the world. Romans eight twenty nine says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he, the Son, might be the firstborn among many brethren. We don't believe that Jesus was born twice, but in the mind of God, he was already the firstborn among many brethren before the creation of the world. The Son was predestinated as the firstborn among God's elect. Verse 30 goes on to say, Whom he did predestinate, them he also called, whom he called, he also justified, whom he justified, them he also glorified. So God's elect were already glorified before the world was even created. How much more the Son of God was glorified. Ephesians 1.11 states that in Christ we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him. The plan of who? The plan of God the Father. Romans 8.30 proves that God's elect were predestined to have glory, just as the Son of God was predestined to have glory. John 14, 17, 18 proves that Jesus is the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. It almost sounds like Jesus is talking about another person. You know him, for he dwells with you and shall be in you. But then Jesus plainly says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So if Jesus is the Holy Spirit, the entire Trinitarian doctrine collapses because the Holy Spirit is supposed to be a third alleged divine person of a three-person trinity. I never uh, heard uh, Mr. Burgos uh, prove that the Holy Spirit is a third God person uh, along with the Father. That's why Jesus said that there is only one true God, the Father. 2 Corinthians 3.17 admits that the Lord is... Jesus is the Spirit. And so uh, the scriptures prove that God, all the fullness of God in Colossians 2.9 says, in him dwells all the fullness of the deity in bodily form. And when Jesus spoke, he did not speak on his own authority, but he spoke the words of the Father. He said, the Father, the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's word. And, of course, the Greek word logos is used in John chapter 14, verse 24. So we go back to John 1 once. It says, in the beginning was the word. It doesn't say, in the beginning was the Son. Again, in 1 John 1, 1, we find that which was from the beginning, not he who was from the beginning. Because the impersonal word of God, prior to the incarnation of God, was made flesh. That's when the word became personal. That's when... Uh, Jesus Christ was born of a woman law, and that's when God entered into a new existence. He was never a man before, but because he couldn't find any man who was holy enough to rescue humanity, he said that his, his own arm brought salvation in Isaiah 59, 16. So since Jesus is spoken of as the arm of Yahweh revealed, he must be an extension of that true God the Father. Now, I know that seems too miraculous to be true, but you go to Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 through 14, 
uh, the Lord moved to the prophet Isaiah to speak to King Ahaz. He said, ask for a sign, whether it be a, uh, a sign in the heavens above or a sign in shell beneath. And the, the king said, I will not tempt the Lord. I'm not going to ask for a sign. Then Isaiah uh, spoke the word of God and said, the Lord himself will give you a sign, a miraculous sign, obviously. A virgin will conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Jesus. So not only was it a miracle of the virgin conception, but it's a miracle that this child born and son given would be bestowed the name which is above all names in Philippians 2.9. And so Jesus said in John 5.43, I have come in my Father's name. One minute. Zechariah, one minute. Zechariah 14.9 says, In that day, in the millennial reign of Christ, all men will know that there is only one Yahweh and his name one. Isaiah 45.14.15 clearly states that in the millennial reign, all men will, will be bowing before the Messiah, saying, Surely God is in you. There's none else. There is no other God. Truly, you're a God who hides yourself, O God of Israel, the Savior. That explains how Jesus kept the humble role of a lowly bondservant and, and continued to empty himself of his divine rights and was able to say, even the Son of Man who is in heaven, because he spoke as a man. He wasn't lying, but he hid the fact that he was truly God. If he went around saying, he that has seen me has seen the Father all the time, then he would not be able to fulfill that humble role as a servant to be obedient to the to the death of the cross and save humanity from their sins. I think I'm about up. You are. Thank you so much. Okay. Um, so uh, we're now uh, handing the microphone over to Michael for your 10-minute second rebuttal. Uh, you can begin speaking whenever you're ready, Mike. Okay, thank you. Uh, uh, first, I, I'd just like to say, uh, Mr. Ritchie, if I was a little bit aggressive, I apologize. This subject is... Uh, extremely important to me. I feel very passionate about it, as I'm sure you do. Um, in the beginning of my opening presentation, I, I made the foundational argument regarding tonight's thesis, uh, that God the Father was alone uh, before the Incarnation. And I noted that Mr. Ritchie uh, even furthered that to go before the creation, that the Father was alone before the creation. My argument was um, based upon the dilemma that Mr. Ritchie has put himself in, insofar as that either he has to ground the fatherhood of God in the certainty of his work as creator, uh, thereby making him, making God dependent on creation for his identity, or that he would have to redefine the fatherhood of God to mean something other than father, irrespective of creation. I asked Mr. Ritchie plainly, and he said that God is Father in light of creation. Um, I asked him that question explicitly, and he affirmed it. Uh, what this means is that the very identity of God is dependent upon the creation, according to my opponent's view. If that does not shout unbiblical, if that does not shout false God, I don't know what could. You cannot have a father who has no progeny, who is a father only in light of the fact that he would create. That would mean for eternity past before creation, God was a father, but who was in utter solitude. It's nonsensical. 
Rather, isn't it easier to believe what the scriptures teach that the Father, God the Father was loving his Son before the creation of the world, that there was a divine relationship, that God didn't have to learn what it was like to be loved? That God didn't have to learn what it was like to be in a relationship, but rather that God the Father was always Father, that he was always in relationship with his Son? Seems to be the biblical depiction in John chapter 17. And it is that same love, not love in prospect, not love in God's mind, but that same love that he had with the Son that he gives to the people who are in Christ. Oh, that we might see the importance of that. I asked Mr. Ritchie if he would define his relationship with his wife as is one that's characterized, that's defined by love. He said yes. But he won't grant God that same opportunity, that same uh, aspect of the Imago Dei that he holds for himself. Rather, he idealizes the love of God by appealing to Jeremiah. But is, that, is, is there a parallel between the explicit relationship talked about throughout the Gospel of John between the Son and Father and the fact that God <clears throat> uh, had said that he knew Jeremiah before he was born? Of course not. Of course not. There's no contextual link. There's no exegetical warrant to impose that text upon John 17. And that really is a grand example of proof texting. When you don't like what a passage says, you go find another verse far removed from its context, and you apply it to that passage to make it say something it doesn't. But that's not how we're supposed to treat the scriptures. The three rules of context, my, my good friend Chris Roseboro has taught me well. He says context, uh, the three rules of proper hermeneutics, context, context, context. Mr. Ritchie, you have not used those rules very well this evening, nor in your writings. Um, so just to underscore that again, Mr. Ritchie's view, God, his identity, his father is dependent upon creation. I asked Mr. Ritchie who was the, the person who was active, who made God manifest in the flesh. He didn't answer that question. I asked Mr. Ritchie why he employed a textual variant from the King James Version, uh, which he used inconsistently in his time, uh, to refute Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. Uh, he didn't really have an answer for that. I don't think he quite understood uh, what was going on there. But you would think that if you're going to usurp the teaching of orthodoxy of 2,000 years of Christian history, you might know that you're quoting a textual variant. The fact is that <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 1 communicates that the Son was active in creation. We did not hear a, a, a genuine response to that. When I asked Mr. Ritchie who was the subject of Hebrews 1, 10 through 12, he refused to give an answer. He tried to suggest that it wasn't the Son, when in fact he had affirmed it was the Son in his opening presentation. John chapter 17, 5. Mr. Ritchie did not deal with the argument I made. Father, glorify me in your own presence, the first part of the clause, is linked with the second part of the clause, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. If you deny that that was a real glory, that he had before the world existed, you're denying 
by default, the glory that he was asking for in his own presence. The two are syntactically linked. I went further to talk about John chapter 8, the fact that the son has uh, <clears throat> said that he has seen things with his father. We heard nothing regarding that. Nothing at all. I, I spent a fair amount of my time in the beginning of the opening presentation dwelling on that single verse within its context, showing how the uh, contextual reading of that verse says exactly what I said it says, and we didn't hear any response of that. Um, and that's a shame. I wish we would have. I think the ultimate thing that we have to keep our eye on here is the God that Mr. Ritchie is arguing for, the God that he's here to defend, the God that he's here to promote. Again, he's promoting uh, a Jesus who loved, honored, worshipped, obeyed, prayed to his transcendent self. Again, does that sound like the God of Scripture, or is that confusion? Be the judge. When I read the Scriptures, I see a relationship that has existed into eternity, and that the Father has loved His Son, not even before eternity, but in the Incarnation, we see that love manifested at the baptism. This is my beloved Son today. Uh, 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 I'm pleased with Him uh, uh, at the Transfiguration. This is my beloved Son. Do what He says. This kind of relationship is depicted not as a convention of the Incarnation, but to teach us exactly what God is like. And that revelation of Christ showing us what God is like, bringing the revelation of God to man has been usurped by a doctrine that came about um, through a supposed revelation that somebody had at a camp meeting. But really, is what we heard tonight from Mr. Ritchie strong enough to overcome these things? I, I don't think it is, and, and Christians down through the history haven't either. I thank you for your time. Okay, thank you, Michael. Uh, at this point, we're just about to wrap up. Um, each participant will have seven and a half minutes to offer a uh, closing statement. And just as a way of reminder, I just want to remind everybody that this is an opportunity not to present new argumentation, not even to respond to arguments you haven't already responded to, uh, but rather to remind the listeners of the arguments that you've made and how they've been responded to and how you've already responded to your opponent's arguments. Let's not use this opportunity to bring up something new that hasn't already been stated uh, because there's wouldn't be fair uh, since there is no following rebuttal period. So with that sort of disclaimer and, and, and admonition out of the way, uh, Stephen, when you're ready, I'll start your seven-and-a-half-minute timer and you can begin. Okay. Um, I'm going back to Psalm chapter 8, verse 6, and I quote from the Hebrew text, You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. So in Hebrews, that was a direct quote from Psalm 8, 6. So obviously the book of Hebrews is identifying the Son as the one who would have all things put under subjection under his feet. So I don't see that as an argument against what I just said. Um, John chapter 17, verse 3, as I opened with, Jesus addressed the Father as the only true God. 
And I asked Mr. Burgos to exegete John 17, 3 and John 4, 23, 24, how that only the Father was seeking true worshipers to worship him in spirit and in truth. Um, if the Trinity were true, you would think that each alleged divine person would share the full attributes of the first divine person. In other words, if the Father is fully omnipotent, the Son and the Holy Spirit should also be omnipotent, all-powerful. But it seems to me that Mr. Burgos is, is speaking of a subordinational Son prior to the incarnation, rather than a completely co-equal God the Son, because in Hebrews 2, um, I'm sorry, in um, Philippians 2, verse uh, 7, he states that the Son emptied himself, but he never gave me a valid reason of exactly what this Son emptied himself. He refused to say that he emptied himself of his divine attributes. Most Trinitarians I have spoken with believe that the Son left heaven, lost his omnipresence, but Mr. Burgos uh, refuses to take that stand because apparently he knows it cannot withstand the truth of the entire Word of God. Um. Mr. Burgos used human speculation in his assumption that an alleged God the Son has eternally existed along with the Father throughout eternity past. Now, when I say Father, I'm just identifying Yahweh, the self-existent one. Whether I say Father or Yahweh, that self-existent one, his name means the self-existent one, not the self-existent three. And I asked Mr. Burgos, whose arm is Jesus? And I never received a definitive answer because he knew that if he said uh, that Yahweh is the arm of God the Son, well, that would go against a lot of Trinitarian theologians and would probably uh, uh, make a lot of uh, controversy among the Trinitarian apologists that he's friends with. Um so the Son of Man could be spoken of as in heaven, as in and on earth at the same time, because he is God the Father. So his spirit is still the omniscient spirit. And Malachi three six says, "I am Yahweh; I change not." I brought up two Samuel seven fourteen, which clearly states that God the Father said during the Old Testament time period, or at least sometime prior to the incarnation, God the Father said, "I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son." In the future, it does not make any sense to believe that God the Father was there with an alleged God the Son, and God the Father said, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son, while the Son was another co-equal God person up in heaven. I quoted Psalm 2-7, uh, in which Yahweh, God said, You are my son, this day have I begotten you. The clear language in Hebrew, proves that the Son was begotten on a specific day. He could not have had an eternal day in which he was begotten. Again, the Hebrew word begotten means to give birth to. So it doesn't make any sense to believe that the Son of God existed as an eternal Son of God because the very title Son of God was given because of the incarnation in Luke chapter 1, verse 35. The Holy Spirit sired the child. According to Trinitarian theology, it should have been God the Son who descended over Mary and incarnated himself, but it says the Holy Spirit. That's why the Bible proves that Jesus is the Holy Spirit. 
I brought up evidence that 2 Corinthians 3.17, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And I proved uh, by the Scripture that Paul wrote in Romans 8.9, uh, we are not in the flesh, you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is not of his. So the Holy Spirit is not a third God person of a trinity, but the Holy Spirit is just a manifestation of the face of the Father, just as the Word made flesh was a manifestation of the face of the Father. Hebrews 1-2 states that God spoke to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. I never heard Michael Burgos uh, refute this verse, because this verse proves that the Son did not speak to the Hebrew fathers, the Israelite fathers, because the Son did not speak unto us until these last days. Um, I had challenged Mr. Burgos to give me a reason why the Son was called the Son other than the New Testament reason given Luke one thirty five, But I just heard him take up time, but I didn't hear a definitive answer. Uh, what verse of Scripture proves that the Son was called Son other than the New Testament verse in Luke one thirty five, which shows that the title Son was given because of the Incarnation? Likewise, the Son of Man, the title Son of Man, he could not have been an eternal God, the Son of Man, up in heaven, because the Son of Man is a title referencing the Incarnation. He was the Son of Man through his mother Mary. Mary conceived a son and gave birth to a man-child. That's why he's called the Son of Man, because he's the Son of Mankind through the lineage of Mary. One minute. No evidence was given to prove that the Father and Son actually dialogued with each other prior to the Incarnation. My opponent could not give us a reason because there, there really isn't any evidence to show that the Son actually existed at the right hand of God the Father prior to the Incarnation, but we find only the evidence after the Incarnation that God the Father clearly begot a Son who ascended up to the right hand of the Father, waiting till his enemies be made his footstool. And then when he comes down with his mighty angels, he's going to sit on the throne of God and of the Lamb in the city, the New Jerusalem, and there's going to be one throne, and his servants shall serve him. The Scriptures prove that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit that became Christ. That's why it says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. The apostles spoke interchangeably of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Christ. Even Jesus himself in John 14, 17, 18, identified himself as the Holy Spirit of truth. That's seven and a half minutes. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, Stephen. And uh, Michael, you'll get to uh, close out the debate proper uh, when you're ready to begin your seven and, a half, seven and a half minute closing. I'll begin the timer when you begin speaking. Okay, um, once again, the, the, the main argument I presented this evening, uh, to which we didn't get a response to uh, in defense, anyhow, was that in order, to, in order for Mr. Ritchie to maintain his position and indeed in, affirm the thesis of tonight's debate, that, <coughs> excuse me, that uh, the father existed alone before the incarnation, and as I mentioned earlier, before the creation, uh, we would have to ground the identity of God as Father in some way. Uh, Trinitarianism has affirmed that God the Father has existed for eternity. 
uh, as I previously mentioned, uh, the Creed. Um, Mr. Ritchie doesn't affirm that creed, but rather he is a god who is father who existed in eternity past alone. And yet he has the temerity to criticize the idea of an eternal son. But really, what is the difference between an eternal father and an eternal son? Well, these are relational names. Um, and if it is absurd to have an eternal son, then it is certainly absurd to have an eternal father. Mr. Ritchie, in fact, conceded the debate when he uh, basically made the identity of God uh, derivative of creation. God in his essence cannot be derivative of creation, but rather creation is dependent and derivative from God. I made that very clear. I made that dilemma very obvious, and Mr. Ritchie made his choice. When we looked at Hebrews chapter 1, uh, Mr. Ritchie has numerous times stated that the Son did not have an active role in creation. Uh, however, Hebrews chapter 1 says that he did, said that he was the one through whom creation was made, that the world came into existence. Uh, it goes further to say that the Son is the one who sustains the universe by the word of his power. Hmm. says that he is the radiance of the glory of God. Made mention of these things. Asked the question, was God with ever, without his radiance, the radiance of his glory? Uh, that was never, never really dealt with. But ultimately, I dwelt on verse, verses 10 through 12 and um, made it very clear that the subject being spoken of here is the Son, uh, once again, it says, You, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same, and your years have no end. Um, this text is talking about the Son of God. There's no question about that. There is not a, a theology textbook, a systematic theology, a, a commentary in Hebrews that I have ever seen that I've ever heard of that would argue otherwise. But Mr. Ritchie tried to argue otherwise this evening, that this was in some sense about the Father. Originally, he had argued that this was um, identifying that the Father is naming the Son as Creator, even though the Son really didn't create. But that's just nonsense, because the text upon which he meant to establish that argument uh, was a textual variant. Um, now, I'm not going to talk about motivations regarding basing arguments on textual variants, but I will say that I found it highly inconsistent that he utilized the NIV and other translations throughout his presentation, but yet when it came to this, he relied upon the King James. And so we really didn't have a full-fledged response to Hebrews chapter 1. And between Hebrews chapter 1, John 17, and the issue of the eternal fatherhood of God, that was the bulk of my argumentation. <clears throat> the argument that I made from John chapter 17 was predicated upon the relationship of the first clause to the second clause. I made it very clear that we cannot bifurcate the verse, that 
in order to accept the verse, we must accept it as a whole. If Jesus says, Father, glorify me in your own presence, using uh, para with the dative, and then he says again, with the glory that I had with you, using again para with the dative before the world existed, we should take Jesus at his word and we should understand that there's a, a contextual way to read this verse. But that argument was never addressed. I brought up John chapter 8 in support of that. Jesus having seen things with his father, that was never addressed. Those four verses, those, those four things took up my, the entirety of my opening presentation. None of it was dealt with. And yet Mr. Ritchie wants to make questions about what my motivations are, that, that I know things that allegedly I do. Pointed out that First <clears throat> Timothy uses uh, passive verbs. Um, we didn't hear an answer to that. I asked Mr. Ritchie explicit, uh, explicitly, whose active work affected God to be manifest in the flesh? We didn't hear an answer to that. I asked Mr. Ritchie, um, according to Romans 8, 28, uh, the Holy Spirit intercedes to the Father on behalf of the people of God. <clears throat> Mr. Ritchie basically said that this was the spirit of the human son that interceded on behalf of the people of God. But the text doesn't say that. It says the Holy Spirit intercedes from the Father. And so essentially what he would have to be saying is that the Son is in fact his own Father, that the Spirit of the Son, the human spirit, is the Father. And he doesn't believe that because he believes that the Father is Spirit and in fact a divine spirit. And so he basically refuted his own position in his attempt to respond to Romans 8. But the text says that the Holy Spirit intercedes to the Father on behalf of the people of God. And it's just as simple as that. There's no reason to jump through uh, these kinds of hoops. Let's just read the text and what it says. And it clearly makes a personal distinction. <clears throat> I made a point in my initial rebuttal and in my cross-examination uh, to talk about John chapter 14, uh, the difference there between the sending of the Son and the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, Talked about Romans chapter 8, verse 3, Son being sent in the likeness of sinful flesh. And of course, Mr. Ritchie said God the Father was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh, which is a contradiction. Anyway, I thank you for your time. All right, thank you, Mike. <clears throat> and uh, I just want to let you both know that I'm very thankful that you've given me of your time tonight. I think this debate has been very edifying, uh, will certainly be for uh, for the listeners. It, it was for me as well. I really uh, enjoyed it and learned a lot. So thank you. Thank you both so much. Stephen, thank you so much for your time tonight. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Michael. I love you in the Lord. And Michael, thank you as well for your time tonight. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you to you both. Appreciate it. As I explained at the beginning of the podcast, if you'd like to participate in a debate on my show, please do contact me at chris at theapologetics.com and we'll get something uh, set up. I hope you'll join me for another episode of the Theapologetics Podcast. Until then... Yeah.